Great Father in heaven, thank you for a beautiful Palm Sunday. Thank you for <clears throat> your word that grounds us, that gives us solid truth to hold on to. More than that, that it enriches us, enlivens us, strengthens us. Would you do that by your spirit, because of your grace through Christ, and for his glory we pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> well, as you know, as you've heard already this morning, today is Palm Sunday. That's the first day of Holy Week. We call it Holy Week because um, this is the week where we commemorate and celebrate that most sacred of weeks in the history of the world, the final week of Jesus' life. So Palm Sunday sometimes is not only called the first day of Holy Week, but it's the first day of the last week of Jesus' life before he died, so it is called often Passion Week. Passion Week, not from the English understanding of the word passion, which means desire, but from the Latin word passio, which means suffering. So when you think of the Passion of the Christ or Passion Week, don't think intense desire, think intense suffering. And yet, in our passage of Luke 9, 51 through 56 today, we actually have both meanings combined. So would you please stand and grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. This will be our sermon text for today. Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. <clears throat> but the people did not receive him. Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to focus the bulk of our time today on this clause that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I want to unpack what it means, why he did that, and the implications and applications for our response to this. That he set his face. When someone sets his face to some, something, it's just an idiom of a, a way of saying that he is determined. He is focused and intent. He has resolve. He is resolute to do this thing. But I'm saying that this phrase, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, refers to the resolute love of Christ for sinners. And our response should be that we are moved to, to, to be humble and to delight and to be moved to be more like Christ. That, I believe, is the message of this passage. And it's my prayer for you that the resolute love of Christ for sinners, it should humble us and delight us and move us. And therefore, I pray that it will. But perhaps I should answer the question of why am I saying that this phrase, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, I'm saying that that is the resolute love of Christ for sinners. Why am I saying that? Well, you get the resolute idea and he's setting his face to something. But the love aspect of this is what he is setting his face to do and where he's setting it to go. He is determined. He is resolved. He is resolute, setting his face to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this time meant for Jesus that he would encounter opposition, that he would be abandoned, 
that he would be betrayed, that he would be arrested, that he would be beaten, that he would suffer, that he would die. The word Jerusalem here I don't think merely refers to the the city proper, but to the surrounding area there. Kind of like when someone says, where are you from? And if I say Winsville, and they, they, I'm in another state, they don't know. If I say it's near St. Louis, they go, oh, okay, right? So Jerusalem, but very close to that is the Garden of Gethsemane, the edge of the Mount of Olives. In that garden, Jesus went, and he would sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, being in agony over what was about to happen to him. In that garden, he would also be disappointed and abandoned by his friends, betrayed by one of his own disciples. He would be arrested. And he would be taken from there. And part of Jerusalem is that where the interrogation happened, where they would spit on him and mock him. They would beat him. They would have a mockery of justice. Jerusalem includes where they would take him up the hill to the place of the skull, Golgotha or Calvary, where he would be crucified between two criminals. And in his death, he would bear the wrath of God for sinners. It includes all of this in this final Passion Week. And he knew it. Jesus knew what awaited him at Jerusalem, and yet still he went. More than that, he was determined to go. Look at Mark chapter 10 with me, verses 32 through 34. And they were on the road, that's Jesus and his disciples, going up to (coughs) Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, perhaps just having all this on his mind. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. I'm guessing they were afraid of what they thought might happen. And Jesus says, no, indeed, it will happen. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus knew all of this was awaiting him. And yet, he was determined to go. Why? In a word, love. It was love. But that seems somewhat vague of an answer, doesn't it? So let's get a little bit more specific here. Why did Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem? first answer we could say is for the joy that was set before him. In Hebrews 12 verse 2 it says, for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross. In Luke 9 51 it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that phrase taken up Luke uses elsewhere when he writes in the book of Acts speaking of his ascension back into heaven where he would be vindicated, where he would be honored and praised and glorified as the son of God. He was going up into heaven again, where joy was awaiting him. For the joy that was set before him, he had great hope that that's what would be his reward. And so he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The focus had narrowed. The time was set, and it was scheduled, and it was nearly here. Jesus was ready. He was resolved to meet his doom through suffering, knowing that it would result in his glory, his honor, and his joy. But why? Why must he go that way? Why must that be the path to victory? Why does he have to go through shame in order to get glory that he rightly deserves? 
Why does he have to go through suffering and even death at the hands of wicked men in order to receive the fullness of his joy? You see, it doesn't say that he set his face to go to heaven. It says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was indeed looking to the joy that was set before him in heaven. He was indeed knowing that he was going to be taken up after his death. There was to be resurrection and ascension. But here it says, knowing that, he set his face to go to Jerusalem where he would die. Maybe the second answer will help us more. Why did Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, not only for the joy set before him, but for the honor of his father? For the honor of his father. We read earlier in Philippians 2, verses 8 and 11, that Jesus' death on the cross was an act of obedience, which must mean that the father commanded him to obey. And that's indeed what John says, or Jesus says in John 10 and John 14, that this was the charge that his father had given him. He is merely obeying his father's commands. And if you look at Luke 9, 51 again, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. That's a loose translation of the Greek phrase here. It's more literally, as the days were being fulfilled, which is weird language for us unless we understand that this is about fulfillment of prophecy. You see, God the Father had planned this, and he had commanded it to his son, and he had prophesied through the prophets that this was what the Messiah ought to do, what he must do. So Jesus, in order to honor his father, was obeying him. He went to the cross out of love for his father and obedience to him. And so we could say, well, so far we see that Jesus set his face to go to, the, to, go to Jerusalem where he knew he was going to suffer and die because he had a hope in the future joy. Like he loved the joy that was going to be his. That he loved the glory that he was going to receive. And number two, that he loved his father. And he loved the fact that his father was going to be honored. And yet, the question still remains, why would the father plan this? Why would the father plan for his son to be glorified, his son to obey him through such a terrible and treacherous path? Why would the father command his son to go and be murdered? The answer is love. For the everlasting good of sinners whom he loves. That's why Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. The Father, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And Jesus, the Son, loves us as well. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you see, he gave himself on the cross because... He loved me. Jesus is a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep because he loves them. Jesus says in John 15, 13, that greater love has no one than this, that, than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus does. Do you see, beloved? Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to die because he loves you. Because he loves you. After all, isn't this what love is? being committed to the good of others, even at the cost of great sacrifice to yourself. Now, in saying this, it is not as though love for sinners is the ultimate. That, that's not the ultimate end. That, oh, we are the apex and that we are so wonderful that Jesus just had to love us and so that we're ultimate and his love for us is ultimate. No, surely his glory and honor is. But do you see what he did? 
The glory of Jesus that awaited him in his ascension when he was taken up. And the glory of the Father by the Son obeying him when the days were fulfilled. Were wrapped up in all this same event of Jesus loving sinners unto his own death. He could have chosen to glorify himself in a thousand other ways. But he chose to do it in an act of love for sinners. The glory of the Son and the glory of the Father is wrapped up in the love of sinners. You see, Jesus knew that only through his obedience to the Father would we be forgiven of our disobedience to the Father. That only by his death on the cross and bearing the wrath of God will we be spared the wrath of God and reconciled to him. Jesus knew that it was only if he was resurrected from the dead, only if he ascended on high to be in the glory of the Father would we one day also be resurrected and ascend to the glory of the Father? So it is right to say that on that first Palm Sunday, it was the resolute love of Christ for sinners that made him set his face to go to Jerusalem. It was the resolute love of Christ for sinners, his passion to go to the cross, where he would have that full passion week and suffer in love. But in order, in order for the resolute love of Christ for sinners to humble us and delight us and move us to be more like Christ, we must first be deeply convinced that we ourselves are sinners and that we do not deserve this love. As I read earlier, Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus meant every word he said there, but I can't help but imagine that he chuckled a little bit when he said that last word, friends, knowing that in just a few short days, they would all abandon him and deny him. He was surely a, great, a much greater friend to them than, he was to, than they were to him. And even in one real sense, they had proven to be his enemies, just as all of us. You see, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, when we were his enemies, he sent Christ to die for us. That's love. It's a resolute love. We do not deserve to be loved with such determination. We do not love, uh, deserve to, to have such resolute commitment. But the Holy Son of God would be passionately committed to his own suffering and death on our behalf and in our place. And we can see this. We can see our undeservedness and this, and this gracious love of Christ in our, this passage this morning in Luke 9, if we have humble enough eyes to see that either we are the sinful Samaritans or the sinful disciples. In verses 52 and 53, we see the Samaritans' lack of commitment to Jesus. They actually have a rejection of Jesus. And whether they knew it or not, they were rejecting the salvation that he was determined to secure by going to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and we read in verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now, this is pretty self-explanatory verse. Jesus and his disciples, whether it was the 12 or the 72 or more or less, they had a crowd, a group, they were going to go into Samaria, uh, Samaria, uh, Samaria on the way to Jerusalem. And so they needed some provisions, lodging, food, maybe other needs, supplies for their journey. So he sent some messengers, a couple of disciples, into Samaria. And I can imagine their conversation. <clears throat> we have a, a, a crowd. Okay, uh, how many? Uh, I don't know, like 50? Wow, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, but we're willing to pay. Do you, do you have a place for us? Uh, sure, sure. Any special occasion? 
um, I'll say. Maybe Peter speaks up and says, yeah, it's for Jesus. Jesus of, of who? Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, the, the miracle worker? Yes, he's our rabbi, the teacher. Yeah, some, some here in Samaria think he's a prophet. No, no, he's not just a prophet. He, we think he's the prophet. In fact, we think he's the Messiah. You think he's the king over the, the God's kingdom? Yes. And he's coming here to Samaria? Oh, we'll give you the finest rooms. Yes. Well, how, how long will you need him for? Just a couple of days. We're on our way to Jerusalem. That's where he's going to set up his kingdom. And immediately, that smile of the Samaritan's face turned upside down. We read in verse 53, but the people did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. There was hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it had been for a long time, and I'm sure it was multi-layered. But at the heart of it, it wasn't so much ethnic or cultural, it was a theological difference that they had. We read in John 4 that <clears throat> the issue was one of focus and worship. You see, back when Saul, the first king of Israel, and then David, and then Solomon, they had a united kingdom, but soon after there was a divided kingdom. There was a kingdom in the north with Israel, and that capital was Samaria. And the kingdom on the south was Judah, and that capital was Jerusalem. And ever since then, the gap had been widening, and there was greater hostility oftentimes, or at least sometimes, ending in violence. Because of where they thought the center of the universe was, where God was going to bring his presence again and set up his kingdom on earth. The Samaritans believed in the Messiah. They believed he would come to Samaria. And so when they said, we're going on to Jerusalem, and he was determined to do so, the Samaritans did not take it well. They rejected him. Because he wasn't just planning to go there. He was committed to going there, would not be persuaded otherwise. So they rejected him, not knowing, not realizing that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to be rejected by the Jews, by the Romans, beloved, by his Father on the cross in the place of sinners. So you see how sad it is that the thing that caused them to reject Jesus, his determination to go to Jerusalem, was the very thing they needed him most to do. They needed him to be focused on and resolute, resolved to go to Jerusalem, to be crucified, and then to be resurrected and to descend on high in the place of and for the good of, on behalf of the everlasting good of sinners like them. You, you ought to receive Jesus fully, gladly welcoming him, embracing him completely in faith and surrender. But for some reason or another, there are some of you here who are not receiving him. Perhaps you have grown up in the church, you've heard the gospel, you've sung the songs, you have read from the Bible, and yet you keep him at arm's length. Thus far, Jesus, and no farther, please. And you're not really receiving him. Perhaps the Samaritans here were primarily angry by, at the fact that he was determined to go to Jerusalem, but maybe part of it was not so much theological but personal, and that they were angry that his face was set toward anyone out, anywhere else other than Samaria. Like, make much of us, Jesus. Like, we can handle you being king here with us because we're special, our place is special. And perhaps that's you this morning. 
You know what it means to follow Jesus. If you are to embrace him, it means that you must die to yourself. You must take up your cross if you're to follow him. And you know it. I mean, it's a big ask, isn't it? It seems overwhelming. And you're wondering, is he worthy? And you're wondering all of this. But you forget that what you need most is him not making much of you, but you making much of him. What you need is for him to be determined to go to the cross for sinners like you, and he has. So though you do not deserve it, you do not deserve a second chance, he gives it again today. Jesus is Savior. He is. He's the only Savior, and his love is resolute for sinners like you. So, so much so that he was determined to go to the cross for even the likes of the Samaritans who rejected him outright. He went to the cross for people like you who have rejected him maybe for a long time. So come to him today. Bow your knee. Come to him in humble faith and receive Jesus as the Savior because his love is resolute for you. And yet it isn't just that the Christ-rejecting Samaritans needed and yet were undeserving of his love. It's also the Christ-disappointing disciples who desperately needed but did not deserve his love. In verses 54 through 56, we see the disciples rage and hatred against the Samaritans. And they lack Jesus' resolute love for and commitment to sinners. Look at verse 54. And when his disciples James and John saw it, that is, they saw the Samaritans refusing to receive Jesus. When they saw that, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, it would be easy for us to go, this is pretty extreme, guys. I mean, come on. This is not very Christianly. It's not very Christ-like, and Jesus is right there. What are you thinking? But lest we get too hard on them and fail to see ourselves in them, Maybe we should understand and even appreciate some of what they had here that was going right for them so that we can relate to them better. First, they had a strong faith. They really did. Because they believed that God had the power, not just theoretically speaking, you see, but actually that he could bring down fire from heaven and consume a lot of them. They believed, like this is Old Testament Elijah stuff, and they said, I still believe God can work this way. Do you? A strong faith they had. But they also had a deep love for Jesus. They held him in such high esteem that when someone rejected him, it grieved them. It was like a, a burden over them. And they burned with holy zeal for Jesus and it made them angry. Does it bother you when others reject him? They also had a right doctrine because they knew that truly it is a sin to reject Jesus. If you are not now receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord, you are sinning against the God of heaven. And they knew that. And they also knew that if someone continues to reject Jesus throughout their life, in the end, they will meet with the fiery judgment of God from heaven. It will consume them in hell forever. They knew that. And that was right doctrine. And they also had sincere submission. You notice they, they ask him, and they don't just say Jesus, they say, Lord, we believe you are Lord, that you are master. So 
We, we're not just going to try to attempt to do this. We, we want to ask permission. And not just permission. They ask him, your thoughts. Jesus, what do you want? They're in submission to Jesus. We cannot fault them for what they had here, but maybe even more for what they did not have. We read in verses 55 and 56, but he, that's Jesus, <clears throat> he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Jesus refused to consume them. He refused to condemn them to death. The disciples did not yet have a right understanding of the focus of Jesus' mission, why he came. We read of it in John 3, 17, where he says that, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Make no mistake, Jesus will come again. And when he comes, we read in 2 Thessalonians, he will bring fiery judgment with him, yes, for those who rejected him. But that wasn't so in his first advent. He didn't come to bring death. He came to be death. He came to die. He set his face to go toward Jerusalem so that he could die for sinners. He wasn't about to consume them in Samaria here. The disciples didn't get it. They had not yet grasped the heart of Christ for sinners. They did not emulate his resolute love for sinners. And they didn't really see themselves as sinners who were just as deserving of his fiery wrath as the Samaritans were. What about us? We ought to be like Jesus in this encounter, full of grace and mercy and love. I mean, my family might be too able to attest to this this week when I'm feeling behind on the sermon and my face is set towards preaching this message. I get interruptions and I don't always respond with patience and gentleness. Jesus it wasn't just a slight interruption or inconvenience. He had to go on to another village when he was ready to stop here. And just that enough might make me want to consume them with fire. But Jesus says, no, we're not going to do that. I'm going to rebuke those who want to destroy them. Such is his resolute love. Full of grace and mercy. Being committed to the good of sinners, even at, the great, at great cost to ourselves. That's what we should be like. But instead, too often, we are like James and John, aren't we? Even after following Christ for a long time, our focus can go awry where we don't quite understand or emulate Jesus' heart for sinners as we ought to. Our commitment to them wavers. We don't really remember or fully realize just how deserving we are of His wrath, how undeserving we are of His resolute love, and yet how desperately we need it. Too often, <clears throat> our faith in Jesus is weak. Our commitment to Him is shallow, and our humble recognition of just how much we need Him and yet do not deserve Him is sorely lacking. And yet, and yet, though we deserve for His face to be set against us, in His gracious love He is committed to us, He is determined, and He is resolute to be for us. And because Jesus hasn't, doesn't, and cannot change because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love has not, does not, and cannot falter. Jesus is still and forever resolutely committed to the salvation of his people. His love for you, Christian. His love for you means that he is committed to your everlasting good no matter what. Always has been and always will be. 
So what of your excuses that, that God must not love me? I, 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 I can doubt it sometimes. Why? What reason do you have? Has he not proven his love is resolute? Yes, for sinners. I was thinking of that word resolute this week. It's not a word we use very often. And so I was looking up in the thesaurus, like, what other words can we use to, <coughs> to help us understand this love of Christ? His resolute love. Here is a, a list of just some of them. His commitment to his people is persistent and relentless. It is steadfast and tenacious. And one of my favorites, it is stubborn. His love is stubborn. That means it refuses to give up. He refuses to give in. When everybody else is saying, stop, they don't deserve it. He says, no, my love you see for them is stubborn. It's a resolute love. He is committed to us. And it's uncompromising. It's unflinching, unshakable, unwavering, unyielding. And one of my favorites is undaunted. That is, is he, he's not easily dismayed or discouraged. He sees everything, all the opposition and every reason to be against us. And he says, I'm not daunted by that. That doesn't slow me down. There's no hindrance or obstacle to his loving us that he overcomes. His love is resolute. His commitment to his people is constant. It's decided. It's dogged and determined. His love is faithful and firm and fixed. It is immutable, inflexible, and one of my favorites is inexhaustible. That is, he never gets exhausted. He never gets tired of loving us. He doesn't grow weary. He has patience, and it does not run out for his people. There is no end. There is no bottom. You'll never find it where you come to the end of his love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His love is resolute. His commitment to his people is loyal and perseverant and resolved. His love is set and settled. It is steady. His commitment to us is undeterred, unbending, unchanging, unfaltering. And one of my favorites is valiant. Like a knight who is brave and courageous and heroic and goes into battle doing his utmost, his very best. And the very best of the Son of God is always effective. His love is valiant for us. It wins. It overcomes. It saves. This is the resolute love of Christ for sinners. And it should humble us. It should delight us. And it should move us. So how should we respond? Number one, humbly receive him. Humbly receive him. If you are not receiving the Lord Jesus by faith, if you're not surrendering your heart, yielding to him, for wondering whether he's worthy, whether his love is enough, it is. He is. Embrace him with faith. And if you want to know more what that means or what this is that Jesus was set his face to go to Jerusalem for, sinners, yes, sinners like you and like me, and please come and talk to me afterwards or talk to a, a, another pastor or a Christian around you. You can email us and put it on a connection card. We'd love to share with you more. But secondly, for those who, humbly, who do humbly receive him, delight in him. Delight in his resolute and sacrificial love for you. Meditate on his love. Memorize passages about his love. Maybe this week take one verse or one passage of scripture and memorize it. It talks about his faithful love for you. 
read the Holy Week readings this week. It's on our website, on a blog post. We have just the the readings of the last week, this Passion Week of Jesus' life. Read them this week. Read a a devotional or, or two. Sing songs and ask the Holy Spirit to stir up within you and a love for, an appreciation for, a value of, a delight in Jesus and his resolute love for you. That your affections would burn hot for him. Thirdly, be moved to resolute obedience and sacrificial love for other sinners. Let his resolute love for sinners, his commitment to sinners, move you to have the same. Going back just a few weeks, when Pastor Steve preached from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, saying, do not grow weary of doing what is good. We need to hear this regularly. My wife said it should be on a coffee cup every time we drink. We need to remember and be reminded and remind each other, don't grow weary. Let your love be resolute. Maybe it's your spouse. You need to be reminded to commit, to stay committed to them for their everlasting good. Maybe it's to your children or to your parents, to your siblings, or that customer or coworker, that client or your boss or that employee. Maybe it's your neighbor or extended family or that fellow covenant member. Don't grow weary in loving them. Let your love be determined, inexhaustible, undaunted, Valiant, let it be resolute in hope for the joy that is set before you. In obedience for the honor of God the Father, be moved by the resolute love of Christ to be loving in the same way for the everlasting good of sinners like yourself. And lastly, be moved. Be moved to be faithful messengers of Christ's resolute love for sinners. You see, his message should be in our mouths. We are ambassadors of such love. He made his his face by love set him toward Jerusalem to go and die. And his love has made him set his face toward all of his elect, even those that are yet unbelieving. May your heart be set on them, set on the lost, to have the message of his resolute love and share it with them. By way of application of this, we can see a metaphor, I think, for us in verse 52. We read, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. As a metaphor for ourselves, we too are his disciples, aren't we? We too are his messengers, sent by him ahead of him to make preparations because he's coming. And the message is Jesus is Savior. He is the Messiah. He is the King. And He is coming to bring salvation to His people, but judgment to those who reject Him. So do not reject Him. We are called to prepare others for His second coming. We are called to be faithful messengers, both with a heart for and the message of His resolute love for sinners. These are the goals of this passage. The, this is the goal, I think, of, the, of focusing on his great, sacrificial, gracious, resolute love for sinners, is that we would do these things. We would be humbled and delighted and moved to be like him. But as I said, in order for the resolute love of Christ for sinners to humble us and delight us and move us, we must be first deeply convinced that we ourselves are sinners and that we do not deserve, though we desperately need, his resolute love. 
And so in order to help us to express and to more deeply be convinced of the graciousness of his love, the depth of his love, and the undeservingness of his love, would you say aloud this prayer of confession with me? It's going to be on the screens here. Please read this aloud with me. Gracious and faithful God, having heard your word, we humbly and joyfully remember the loving resolve of your blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet we also acknowledge our failure to respond earnestly and faithfully to him. Our commitment to him is far less than his to us. We do not fully appreciate the strength of his courageous determination, the depth of his agonizing suffering, or the magnitude of his sacrificial love on the cross for us. We need him precisely because we are not like him. Our obedience is never as unwavering. Our love is never as undeterred. Our praise is never as unfailing. And our joyful hope in him is never as unshakable as he deserves. And even in this Lenten season, we have not walked faithfully in the way of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Please forgive us, Father. Make us ever more fully into the image of your Son and bring us ever more fully into the joy of communion with you in him. In his name we pray, amen. Church, we come now to the communion meal. And I want you to know that communion follows confession, just as pardon follows plea, and help follows humility, and forgiveness follows faith. And I, want us, I want to lead us into this communion meal by taking us back to that phrase that we started with in Luke 9.51. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. The phrase is used in the Old Testament several times. And that, that idea of setting one's face in the Old Testament prophets usually meant the idea of setting one's face to prophesy against the sinners. It was always a word of warning about what was to come. Two things come to my mind when I think of this. One, this passage in Luke 9, 51 through 56 is not yet Palm Sunday. <clears throat> it was the changing of direction for the whole gospel of Luke, and it was the same, it's the same focus of Palm Sunday, where he started to go towards Jerusalem, but in Palm Sunday as he first showed up in Jerusalem. And that, the other thing he did when he went into Jerusalem, we read earlier on that first Palm Sunday, that he came riding in on a donkey's colt, and they laid down their coats and their palm branches, and it was triumphal entry as they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But shortly after that, he goes to the outskirts of Jerusalem, and he overlooks the city, and he weeps for them. On that first Palm Sunday, he wept for them, and then he uttered a warning of judgment that was to come. And the next day, he went into Jerusalem and he gave a picture of warning, a picture of judgment that was a warning by driving them out of the temple. That should tell us that if you are not receiving the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that we weep for you, but we also warn you that judgment is coming. He is coming again. 
His first coming was to save. His second coming will not only be to save his people, but to judge and condemn with fiery consumption those who reject him. So let this be a warning to you. Let it be a motivation to, let it move you to embrace his resolute love while yet there is time. But secondly, though the prophets would often set their face against a city and against the people to prophesy doom against them, and though that is all what we all deserve, Jesus, you see, is more than a prophet. He's also the suffering servant who bore the judgment of God for sinners upon himself. So if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, then let this be to you both an example for you of resolute love for sinners. But let it also be a picture of his resolute love for you. As Piper says of verse 51, Jesus, who was the very embodiment of his Father's love for sinners, he saw that the time had come and he set his face to fulfill his mission. He set his face to die in Jerusalem for our sake. So now please, if you are not yet receiving, trusting in this love of God through Christ His Son, then when others come to partake of communion, please don't. Stay where you are. Stay where you are and pray. Pray and ask the Lord to humble you and to lead you to embrace Jesus by faith. And if you are trusting in Jesus and you've had that faith affirmed by other Christians in baptism in a local church, then in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to exit to your left and come up to one of these tables. Grab the communion elements with the gluten-free being to the far left here. And go back to your seat to the right. And receive these, com these communion elements, this bread and this juice that represents the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, the passionate suffering of Jesus that he was determined, that he was resolute to give up for you. And as you partake of it, ask him to humble you. Ask him to delight you in his love. Ask him to move you to be more like him. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, I'm going to invite you to come up when you're ready, but only come when you're ready, please. Don't jump. Settle your heart. Focus your mind. And then come when you are ready. Let's pray. Father in heaven, praise you for your son. Thank you for being the father who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Thank you that you are also willing and committed to with him graciously giving us all things. Thank you, Jesus, for being such a resolute Savior. Thank you for your love. Holy Spirit, continue to work in us. Humble us, delight us, and move us. We pray for the glory of your name. Amen.